Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss King Crimson. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Carried it around with me for days and days Playing little games Like not looking at it for a whole day And then Looking at it To see if I still liked it I did! Okay, here's an episode to challenge you. If you're new to King Crimson and you like prog music, you're going to be in for a treat. If you like jazz, this will also interest you. Or if you're into the avant-garde or cult artist, uh, technical playing, all this, yes. If you like King Crimson, I hope you can appreciate how I managed to cut 12-minute songs down to bite-sized portions for the sake of the podcast. Uh, or you can cry blasphemy and... Um, just know that I've dropped in a few Easter eggs just for you. And if it's totally new to you or totally uh, out there for you, just uh, give it a listen. See what you think. I'll be coming back very soon with an uber pop band so that that gets you back into your comfort zone. But give this podcast a listen so you can be literate about an important band that's more influential than I'll be able to explain in an hour or so. So let's start at the beginning. October 10th, 1969, one of the most legendary progressive albums in history was released. Oh, 
Most people know 21st Century Schizoid Man. It's been covered by bands like April Wine. It's been used by Kanye West as a sample in his song Power. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne's done a cover of it. Voivod's done a cover of it. Government Mule's done a cover of it. It's almost like uh, heavy metal jazz in a way. So King Crimson's influenced uh, early Genesis, yes. Porcupine Tree, Rush, Tool. Iron Maiden, kind of math rock bands like uh, Breadwinner, maybe. And then they've had an interesting background, too, because uh, Ian McDonald, for example, was in King Crimson uh, playing flute. He went on to be uh, in Foreigner and was on the first Foreigner album, which I unabashedly uh, liked. recruited to sing and play bass in King Crimson and he went on to play with Bad Company. Of course Greg Lake who was a singer on the first couple of albums um, ended up in Emerson Lake and Palmer but along the way you had Michael Giles and Bill Bruford and John Wetton, Peter Sinfield and then the, another interesting thing is that at some point Brian Ferry, John Anderson and Elton John all auditioned to be in King Crimson. Whisper by with your mind in your eyes Seeing nothing that's there but the bones of the bear Dying thoughts that would stare in your eyes The band kind of had its origins back in this odd psychedelic group called Giles, Giles, and Fripp. It's two brothers and uh, Robert Fripp, who's this highly intelligent, intellectual man, and has this really on-off-again love affair with his own band. He's even offered to quit King Crimson on at least one occasion to kind of keep the momentum going of what he had started. So everything you've heard about King Crimson is true. It's an absolutely terrifying place. I've read a lot about his mind games through the years, and some of them are pretty interesting. One example with Giles, Giles, and Fripp, he basically said, I want to get Greg Lake to come in and replace one of the two of you. You guys work it out. That first album is one of the best albums of the genre, if not the best. Certainly most polls will have it behind uh, Dark Side of the Moon as best prog album, but it's great. The right critics hated it. Robert Griscow, he thought it was shit, but I would rather go with Pete Townsend who called it an uncanny masterpiece. Greg Lake's vocals on it are fantastic. Really awesome album cover, and I, I think generally the best place to start with King Crimson. It's going to change a lot though, don't expect 10 more albums of this.
new band that's going to go a long way, King Crimson. King Crimson. The second album, In the Wake of Poseidon, comes out in 1970, and this is where uh, Greg Lake quits about halfway through to go join Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But what's interesting is I found a version of Cadence and Cascade from that album that Greg Lake didn't sing on that I guess was a scratch vocal with him on it in the studio, and the King Crimson website released in honor of, of him dying this past year. So I did an interesting uh, sort of mashup. Nothing too technical or brilliant, but I basically took the Greg Lake vocal and moved it in and out of the Haskell vocal, Gordon Haskell, who was singing uh, that part, and occasionally blended their voices, and I think, it, honestly, it's a stronger performance in the end. Yeah. 
thing I found within the wake of Poseidon was that the mood of the album is certainly not light or mellow, but after 21st Century Schizoid Man, it's pretty much a chill record. This album, uh, In the Wake of Poseidon, has much more jarring and frenetic jazz sections. One of the odder tracks on here is called Cat Food. a little less uh, cohesive and I guess that's part of effects of Greg Lake leaving and moving on to Ember Slank and Palmer. The band is in a bit of transition, some members coming and going and kind of plays out like that on the album. It's It sounds a little different track to track as opposed to just the general feel of the first album being very cohesive. Here's a group now on their third album, Blizzard, which came out in 1970. Robert Fripp had to keep it together, and in this case it meant swapping out some musicians for whatever reason. And I think that having a deadline and having to keep something going as if you have to, like it's your only thing, like if you started a family business or something, you can't just like, you know, quit. Of course, it led to, I don't know, like 20 some odd guys coming in and out of the band. Uh, through the years, but um, I like the idea that the CEO stayed and did what he had to do to keep it going. However, this record is maybe the weakest one in the catalog to me. Gordon Haskell, who was kind of brought in temporarily on the last album, was made a full member. Um, oddly, John Anderson from Yes sings on a piece of one of the songs called Prince Rupert Awakes.
It's only weak comparatively to the other albums. It's it's a pretty cool record.
The cool thing about prog music is that these albums that are considered lesser than by newer fans or by uh, critics or casual fans are some of the albums that are loved the most by the actual prog fans. Uh, for example, you might have Relayer by Yes, you know, being loved by somebody like Stephen Wilson from Porcupine Tree. Um, in this case, though, Islands is the one that came out next. To me, it's real nondescript. It's got, you know, interesting songs like Ladies of the Road, but uh, Boz Burrell, uh, who ended up being in Bad Company later on, was brought in on this album. I don't know, it's, it's real meandering. I I think this is kind of a weaker period, and those periods are usually due to the fact of changing personnel and lack of stability in the group, and that was certainly the case with this one. I smiled and just unzipped And then you kind of have a pretty strong period in the mid-70s 
to me a little bit wandering, but 73, 74, 75, you get Lark's Tongue and Aspic, Starless and Bible Black, and Red. Throughout these, you have John Wetton as a fairly stable force in the band. The thing about John Wetton is he's kind of always the guy who comes in, almost the, the guy you have on hold to bring back in the studio when you need to or join back in the band. John Wetton was also in Asia, if you remember that band. Interestingly enough, his place was temporarily taken by Greg Lake for members of Lake of Palmer. John Wetton and Greg Lake used to get swapped out quite a bit, but John Wetton has probably played in virtually every prog band I can think of. He, he wasn't in Yes, but that was only because of Chris Squire pretty much being Yes at many times. I really like these albums. Lark's Tongue and Aspect is, it has Bill Bruford back in the band. Having Bruford in the band to me is really key to the sound. If you, if you can't have Michael Giles from the first album or even ian wallace this is more of a drummer's band than people realize i think because you're so used to hearing about the guitarist's name and and particularly when adrian blue came in but tony levin playing along with bill bruford and john wetton and bill bruford and you know ian wallace on there michael giles really interesting talent as far as drummers go and i think i would love to hear from drummers about what they think of this especially if you're not entirely well versed in the whole king crimson catalog i'd be real curious if you hear something in there that you agree with or disagree with me on but I, I think that this band could not function with a typical kind of four on the floor drummer if I only could deceive you forgetting the game every time I try to leave you you laugh just the same cause my wheels never touch the road and the jumble Returns to my back to weigh me down We lay cards upon the table, the backs of our hands And I 
Starless and Bible Black. It's probably my favorite album of theirs aside from the first album.
say my favorite album of theirs, I really truly think of King Crimson pre-80s as being a totally different band. Even though every single album is, is somewhat different, the dramatic change when they brought Tony Levin in and basically reconstituted the band so much, it to me felt like a totally different thing. But when Starless and Bible Black came out, the band did a lot of it live and then kind of fixed it up in the studio and I love that idea because this band in particular would do all kinds of live improvisations and so they would capture different things and then they would go back in the studio and remove the crowd sounds as much as they could layer on instrumentation and maybe do a little cut and pasting and, and kind of put together songs and the album ultimately from things that they had worked on on stage. Another reason I really like this album is I think there's only singing in like four of the songs and the singing is never bad on their albums but the singing is like the least important part of the album. 
and lyrics probably slightly less than that, if not less than. The group always seemed to have a need for somebody to write lyrics for them. Even in the 80s when they brought in Adrian Ballou and stuff, he, he didn't like to sing, he didn't like the lyrics, or having to write lyrics. It was about the music and the guitar to him. So I think that a lot of fans, and I mean like real fans of King Crimson, this is one of the top ones up there. Side 2 is entirely instrumental. <laughs>
In the last album before Robert Fripp broke up the band the first time, they put out Red. And Red is like a really popular album among a lot of metal guys. It just has Bill Bruford, John Wetton, and Robert Fripp on the cover. The album has other instrumentation going on, but it's it's really kind of a heavy and stripped-down riff-oriented album more than their others. And it's real popular. This was on Kurt Cobain's list of favorite 10 albums, uh, oddly enough. And so I, I like the album. It just doesn't rate as high for me. things get really interesting. In 1975, Robert Fripp says he retires or he breaks up King Crimson. Whatever it is, he's done with that part of his life, at least for now. And so he moves into a lot more ambient work. Had something called Frippertronics that he does. He uh, worked with Brian Eno on a couple albums, No Pussyfooting and Evening Star. And then he uh, went and did some studio work as a guitar player on Peter Gabriel's first couple albums. Of course, he did the famous and iconic guitar lead all through uh, the song Heroes by David Bowie. It's no ordinary guitar sound. I'm, I know you can't buy a pedal like that that'll sound like that. So what we did, we had it played over three tracks and no one track was good enough. They were meaningless until I threw them up like this. Three, the three together. But we always had this constant frip thing going all over the place like it was like a celestial frip sound.
really weird thing though is that Robert Fripp was involved with Daryl Hall from Hall and Oates for a while there in the 70s. I guess they were friends. They recorded an album together. It was a Daryl Hall solo album called Sacred Songs. Daryl Hall had decided he didn't want to be Daryl Hall. He wanted to be taken more seriously as an artiste. Um, but I think these songs kind of show why that couldn't happen. singing on Robert Fripp's solo album Exposure. A lot of people think that's a classic. I don't I don't know what that is. Fripp was kind of out there out and about, really making his name on his own. Parallel Lines by Blondie and on Talking Heads Fear of Music album. He had a group called the League of Gentlemen that he would take out and uh, in the early 80s he did two really fantastic albums with Andy Summers from The Police. The other thing that was interesting through all of this, that you had bands like Talking Heads, you had Bowie, of course, the police who are starting to bring in these world music elements, particularly like West African music, that would just spill all over into Peter Gabriel and uh, the Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. And that is how we ended up ultimately with the 1980s version of King Crimson. And that's really where I came in as a fan. This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck. To be continued in the next episode. Stay tuned. End of part one. Subscribe to the Untitled Music Podcast on iTunes and Spotify.